Before we begin, just to let you guys know, our logo artwork was designed by Nicole Anarchy and music by Taylor Paisley French. Warning, this podcast does contain spoilers for the Verse series. Hello everyone and welcome to the Best Damn Camp, a Rawniverse read-along and analysis podcast that sets out to read all the books by Rick Riordan in timeline order. I'm your host Fran and welcome to the show. Today I am joined by a very special guest who is a fellow author and podcaster. It is Megan of the Monstrous Women podcast. Megan, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh gosh, uh, this is so exciting. So I have been on the Monstrous Women podcast and this is your first time on the Best Damn Camp, so very exciting. Um, <laughs> but because it's your first time, be sure to let everyone know who you are, what you do, all that sort of fun stuff. Sure. So you can listen to the Monstrous Women podcast where my co-host Quinn and I talk about female representation, specifically when women are sort of painted as monsters in different ways or monsters are given feminine identities. And so we look at different um, forms of media throughout the ages and why women are painted that way. So we just wrapped up a series on Greek mythology and we're going to be talking about Harry Potter next. So you can listen to that on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. We're also on Instagram at the Monstrous Woman Pod. And if you're interested in seeing stuff about me being an author and my writing. I have a debut novel coming out in the next year and my Instagram is Megan Peterson Writes. Very nice. And all of that will be in the episode show notes for everyone listening. So be sure to go click the links down there um, to go support Monster Woman Podcast and Megan's debut. But of course, we are here to discuss the Kane Chronicles today. So today we are continuing oh. the timeline journey with the finale of the Kane Chronicles, The Throne of Fire, with chapter 23, we throw a wild house party. And chapter 24, <laughs> I make an impossible promise, which are from Sadie's point of view. And as always, we have our points to focus on. So today, we've got finales, characters, and generally what we thought of it. So let's dive on in. Uh, Megan, would you like to possibly read the overview for chapter 23, we throw a wild house party? I would love to. (laughs) Okay, so our pair arrive at Brooklyn House in a great ball of fire and learn that the weasel and the zebra are, in fact, Walt and Zia. Ra's minion demons join giving... Ra's minion demons join him giving the house a new advantage as the canes jump into battle alongside their students. Quickly, their advantage takes over and they defeat their enemy, but instead of inflicting their wrath, they tell their story. Apophis has risen, and Desjardins gave his life to delay the snake until they were ready. However, some of the worst magicians do not believe a word and promise their revenge. As it turns out, their distrust is somewhat warranted, as with Desjardins gone, it is Amos who is the chief lector now. Yeah. 
and honestly this is the whole thing so okay we're just i'm gonna go straight back into the <laughs> into the <laughs> feedback section because i have so many thoughts and feelings about this amos chief lector thing and like the people that obviously we only have like three magicians who were fighting the kids who leave being like nah we don't trust you guys we're gone and we're meant to believe they're kind of like the bad guys because they don't believe them but very obviously and i think they point it out in the next chapter this does seem like it is a cane takeover like the one person who was in their way of being able to control everything is gone and now they control everything it like it makes sense that people would be suspicious because it does look very suspicious yeah it definitely does i feel like it could have been a cool opportunity and i don't know if this is asking too much of a children's book but to address propaganda because that's essentially why it looks this way like the canes are known as these usurpers and they're super countercultural and they're radical and it's it's very similar to how propaganda works in the states at least um so it makes something really genuine and unavoidable look like a power grab and instead of doing that it's like yeah they're just bad because they don't believe these like literal children who are changing a tradition that the egyptians themselves started when they were still in power like they're the ones who turned away from the gods it's not as if that's purely a Riordan verse thing. Like, he's reflecting that. So it's been thousands of years with them not being able to work with the gods because they were so awful. And then now children are the ones who are like, no, we're going to flip this 180, and, and they're bad for questioning it. Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of things. I think it definitely would have been interesting because, like, the, the fact is the ones who have been painted as evil previously because, like, this, was it the Kayla woman? She was, like banished to antarctica for killing someone and then you've got that kali guy who was banished to north korea for also like doing terrible like things to other magicians and stuff like that so like they're already bad and they're kind of like okay it's just the bad like the actual bad people who have distrust in this system i was like but it is slightly justified but uh, just there are complexities political complexities (laughs) there are I also don't, I definitely didn't see Amos becoming Chief Lecter coming, mm. um, because I knew that they were inferring that he was the second most powerful magician earlier in the book, but mm. I didn't realize that the Chief Lecter was literally just whoever was most powerful, and that doesn't make sense to me. Why? Yeah. Why is there, like, no form of election... Power can be measured in multiple ways. How do they possibly just have a going rank that is completely indisputable and no one has a problem with? Um, And wouldn't you want someone diplomatic in that position and not just somebody who could, like, murder people easily? It's just strange to me. Like how in the States, a lot of times, being president, like a precursor... This is less so now, but for a long time, a precursor was military a military background and I don't understand that either like you are a diplomat making policy decisions and should be looking out for like the welfare of people you really don't need to be the one fighting it's just odd to me yeah I think that's definitely a situation here like I was very confused as well like the first time I read this like obviously I remember that Amos became um 
Chief Lecter from my previous reading of it. But yeah, like you said, like power comes in different ways. Like, and also, how do they measure their power? I'm guessing their power is based on like their magic. But like, how do they measure that? <laughs> do yeah. they put, like is there like an aptitude test or something that they had to take on like magical skill that everyone has to take at some point? I don't know. It just and they all just know like, their status at all times, so that if someone yeah. dies, they all move up a rank. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah, it's a choice. This this is a sad fact that I've got about the King Chronicles in that the magic system started off so well, and mm-hmm. it slowly kind of started to fall away. Of just things are just kind of like yeah, that's just because that's the way it is. It's very much falling into like the Percy Jackson way of how a magic system works. Of it just is because it is. Yeah, it is. Like, there's I'm... a lot of unclear things. A lot of just figuring out as we go along. Yeah, and I, I'm. I don't mind it, but also at the same time, I kind of like. But I like information. <laughs> I would like understanding, please. Yeah, I would like to understand so that when you try to foreshadow, it actually comes across. Yeah. Uh, oh well. <laughs> we we have what we have and then we can just yeah. headcanon other things. I am Very now officially true. headcanning that um they take like an aptitude test but for magic to but like they it's like that thing of like you take the test when you're a kid and you don't really ever take it again, so they are still basing all these power levels based on like when you were like fourteen, fifteen and they're like, yeah. yeah, no, that's it. This is you for life. Like, this is your standing for life. That feels unfortunately very accurate. Yeah. Do we know which gods or goddesses path Amos follows? I know he was possessed by Set, but like who is his deity that even if he's not a godling has like a relationship with? So I don't think we ever knew who it was beforehand, but I think it's basically yeah. officially become Set. Like the magic mm-hmm. he was using for fight was in a sense chaos magic of like lightnings and thunder which is connected to set so i think it's interesting that we didn't know because it's very it's very clearly the, the reason we don't know is so that all of this can happen of like oh now he's just connected to set like but was yeah. he actually prior to this because i'm sure there are probably some people who do follow the path of set because like set isn't evil he's just a chaos god and chaos right. needs to exist for balance to exist but yeah I, yeah, we didn't know who it was beforehand, but I think it's now just officially said. I wish they spent more time talking about that, because I, I know Amos is not the main character of these novels, but I feel like his recovery would be really interesting and in seeing how chaos affects somebody who's supposed to exist in balance. And also, like, I don't know, it would be interesting if him and Set actually reached some sort of, like, symbiotic relationship even though they wanted different things but like learned to coexist i don't know i think that would be interesting yeah i would have really liked that because like technically amos can still be a godling and i think he would be a godling to set because they are connected now but i don't know just yeah i don't think it'll it'll happen but it would be cool if it had (laughs) but um speaking in relation to gods and also unknown information kind of well we find out in the next chapter but just things that i am somewhat disappointed by is um the lack of grief towards bess's sacrifice and bess in a sense no longer existing 
that's almost more devastating that the reaction to his loss doesn't really happen that much we have like in the next chapter like a or is it this chapter i think it's this no it's the next chapter mm -hmm. where we go see bess um where he's basically like a shell of his former self we have like a paragraph in, of that meeting of just some grief and then we move on and it's just it's it's really kind of sad like how are we not like this is someone who's been with the kids since the start of this journey to get the book of ra well near the start of the journey to get the rest of the book of ra and protected them and cared for them and they built a relationship with and yet there's like no grief no real reaction to it like it just feels very much glossed over in some way like do, do you feel that as well uh, or is it just me <laughs> No, especially after you pointed it out and I reread the chapters, I was like, yeah, that's really odd. It's really, really odd. And I think when you're reading it for the first time, you you kind of think, or at least I kind of thought, that Bess was going to be okay, that they would resolve it in this book um, mm. and be able to get his shadow back. I don't, I'm not sure. I thought maybe, I really didn't realize that Raw wasn't going to get better in this book. I thought that they would kind of end this storyline because normally in Rick's books you have a quest that you complete and then the next book has a new quest um mm. and so I thought that there would be a lot more resolution so when I was when there wasn't much grief I was like oh it's probably just because Rick's gonna fix it all and so the kids it's temporary but now knowing that it's not the case in this book it's so odd especially when Sadie is narrating these two chapters and she's like oh it was so fun to fight like I felt great I felt like I'd have like a shower and a warm cup of tea and I was like he just died 10 minutes ago girly like how are you okay already um yeah it was so odd it was like they they were only allowed to be sad about Bess for like two distinct moments and mm. those were self-contained and small and then they were just went on with their lives like unless it was directly in front of them they weren't thinking about it which is not how grief works no and that's the thing that i really picked up because like just think of it in comparison to like i know obviously the relationship with their dad is very different but like we like in a sense ruminated on the grief of them thinking they've lost their dad like that yeah that weight of that loss is there like it's consistent throughout the next couple of chapters after they've lost him this it was just like the moment Bess is gone he's brought up like his name is brought up twice after he's gone um yeah. well there's a few more times in these chapters but like until that the next chapter the last chapter when we actually see him again it's it's like you said like he's literally just in the back of your mind like if he's not in front of you if the Greek like if you're not knowing about him or talking about him he doesn't exist and it's just, it was just really weird. <laughs> like, Rick has done grief so well as well that this just Yeah, he definitely odd. has the potential. Definitely. Yeah. And it's weird to me comparing it to some other relationships that he's addressed. Like, Annabeth grieves Luke so intensely. And that was, like, a bad relationship that Rick just never let go of. And, like, even through Heroes of Olympus, it got brought up. Mm -hmm. And then 
you look at Bess, who was like this great, caring person, and the kids hadn't had a lot of that in their lives. And so they obviously attached very quickly and then it was taken from them. And they're like, oh, it's all right. Like, we've got this battle to fight. No big deal. Yeah. And even with their dad, I mean, Sadie's relationship with Bess was probably closer than her relationship with her dad when he was alive. It's different for Carter, but not for Sadie. Sadie saw him one day a year, and she didn't enjoy it. Mm. Even with the situation with, like, Bass, like, in the first book, Bass, like, quote-unquote, dies or disappears four different times, and each one is just as devastating for the kids. Even though she keeps coming back. Yeah. But then you've got this one guy, like, his death, in a sense, because he is, in a sense, dead. Like, his soul has been reached from his body. He is in a vegetable. So state. tragic. It's awful. But the tragedy just doesn't come across in the text. I it's just I say this a lot, but it really feels like Rick was just rushing to finish this book to finish writing Son of Neptune. Because he was writing these books at the same time. Yeah. And I think Son of Neptune is one of the books he put more care into as well. Sorry, my dog mm-hmm. just started walking around. I back down. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, I feel like Son of Neptune is so carefully plotted because it's Percy's return. I can definitely see how that got overshadowed. And it makes me really sad, and I know you feel this way too, because the, the base for this, the plan for these books is so cool. I really love, um, I really love like characters like Bast and Best. Like, they're so interesting. I love seeing the gods in that light and, like, the difference between the Greeks and the Egyptians where you can interact with the gods a little bit more and they're less of a deity and more just sort of a different, more powerful species. I think that's so interesting to explore in these books. I think choosing which path of the gods to follow is really interesting. Um, And the pharaoh blood is a little bit strange but it's an interesting idea of like how you have a propensity for it and a connection to Egypt um I think it's hilarious that he just puts them in a different borough because he still wants to be based in New York I like I think it's all very delightful and then the plot just goes almost nowhere and it's so odd to me yeah 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 and the Throne of Fire, I think, is just a really good example of that. So I talked about in uh, the in the episode with Robert about, and I think you saw it on the Discord server as well, about the second book syndrome. Yes. Um, and Throne of Fire 100% really suffers from it because it feels like a book that's just being written to get to the finale. Very much. It's even so short, like, compared yeah. to the first book. It's like, oh, we just need to tie up these three, four things so that we can write the finale. Yeah, and this is the ironic thing of like I had so, like issues with the Red Pyramid in that it was a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely some areas I was like, I think that could be pulled back a little bit. But then this one's just way too short. Like these last six chapters, they're just, we're like sprinting through the plot at this point and just like rushing to get to the end. It's kind of like, but can we slow down a little bit and just focus on some of the terror? Like Ra has not turned back into like this all powerful deity. He's an old man who can only say the word zebras and weasel. Like, that's all, that's the extent of it. It's just, it's just a little, it's definitely just a little bit disappointing in some areas, but 
I don't know. I th- although speaking of the um, weasels and zebras, though, I thought that was an absolutely hilarious twist. <laughs> that it was. Yes, not I loved that. Was the involved. That was so good. I loved that. I also think Walt and Zia are more interesting characters than Sadie and Carter. So I was excited that they're important. I was like, please, we don't know enough about these people. Um, I know we find out more about Walt in the next book, but we still, I'm 100 pages from finishing the entire series, and I feel like we've learned nothing about Zia, and that's frustrating. So when I read this, it gave me so much hope of like, please explain how she got here, explain how she's this cool and like accomplished, It and like definitely will become Chief Lecter at some point. Um, yeah, oh I thought God. that was so fun. I would love Zia to be Chief Lecter. Like that is that is something yeah. she deserves. She needs. She yes. She is the only one deserving of. I know she's only sixteen. No, fifteen. Yeah, fifteen or fourteen or fifteen. One of them. But she she should be Chief Lecter right now. <laughs> Just yeah. give it to her. Just give it to her now. No one else deserves it. I feel like Rick writes one female character that falls into this archetype in every series. Because you've got Annabeth in the original series, you've got Samira in Magnus Chase, you've got Zia in Kane Chronicles, and you've got Reyna in Heroes of Olympus, and they all are like, they should just be running everything, the world, their respective universes, because they're just so much more competent than everybody else. <laughs> and it's so yeah. Fun. Oh my god, that is very, very true. And I, I agree with this. So, I will stick up for Carter slightly. I won't stick up for Sadie because I'm I'm sick of her. But I will stick up for Carter in that I like that he is like I like that he's a different kind of hero in that he's not the most confident. He is someone who's growing into confidence. He is book smart. He's very caring. He's he's a good teacher as well. Like I really love that that was a big thing that was explored in this book of like his building leadership skills. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Because like in the case of things like Percy, you don't really see him building these leadership skills until suddenly he does have leadership skills and it's like okay sure fine <laughs> but at least in this case it makes sense because we've seen it and but yeah sadie i'm kind of like no nah, that's just right off sadie <laughs> just, oh she's written so badly yeah. i i agree i like carter i do i still wish rick would have committed to him being the like nerdy book smart weirdo kid yeah. Because his, I don't understand why his connection is to Horace and not Toth. Yeah. Because Toth is very important to the story also and matches Carter's personality more and is a more, like, down-to-earth god who actually is helpful. And, like, I mean, it says in these chapters, Sadie realizes that he's the only one who's actually sympathetic to them. Um, and so it would have been, I don't know. I just feel like it's weird that I liked Carter in the beginning of the first book before he had been like changed by Sadie to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. um, more than I do as the series progresses, because I feel like he's just being convinced to assimilate. And I feel like. It doesn't really make sense for him. Like, he doesn't care about that stuff. Like, he, he dresses like a mini professor, and then he gets, like, you know, bullied out of it and dresses like a normal teenage boy. And, like, I like that he dressed as a mini professor. That was so endearing. Um, yeah. 
and he has all these cool weird skills from traveling with his dad and being like a homeschool kid and and rick definitely leans into it a little bit but like you said they really like show him becoming a leader and i sadie can't do that because she was she's not um carter she wasn't socialized the way carter was she wasn't taught to be responsible the way that carter was um Mm -hmm. and so i don't know i really like carter but i wish that that Rick would have fully committed to him being that kind of hero. Cause I feel like he's half in half out sometimes. Yeah. That I do definitely agree with. And I think we can see that a little bit here. Like I, I kind of like that he's connected to Horace because I think it adds an additional challenge to him. Like he's someone who's like, he's experienced lots of different things in life, but he still doesn't have that much confidence. He doesn't have that much belief in himself. Whereas Horace has too much confidence and too much belief in himself. And they That's kind true. of like balance each other out. Like we even see that Horace kind of sort of mellows a little bit after being connected yeah. to Carter. He's still a dick, but he's mellowed <laughs> out a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think so. I think if they kept his, I think he did definitely deserve to keep his studious side and be able to dress like a little mini professor because that was cool. I like that. That was cool. Okay. Say he's a bully, actually. Said he's actually yeah. a bully. She he's is. Very much I felt personally attacked by some of her comments to Carter. I really did. Yeah, there are lots of different things. Like, there's one I think it was a couple episodes ago now, um, where like when they're passing through like the River of Night, and like obviously they're dressed in like ancient Egyptian garb, and Carter is in like a skirt, basically like the sort of like the wraps, and she basically makes like very internalized misogynistic comment about it. It's like, oh my god, why are you wearing a skirt? Ha 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 ha. I was like, yeah, bro, <laughs> no. And I love that Carter, it doesn't even occur to him because he's been taught mm. to respect this culture mm. and knows that norms are different. And I i mean, I really liked about Carter's character too, how much he knew he was learning from his dad. Like travel light, you don't need worldly possessions, respect other people's cultures, uh, always be on your best behavior. Like as a young black man, I need to be on top of things. And he, he like, carries all of that in, and he's so strong in himself. So it doesn't make sense that Sadie bullying him would work. And that he would yeah. be like, you're right, I should wear it, like, a hoodie and jeans and things like that. Like, no, your dad spent years drilling into you that you need to, um, like, be the best version of yourself. And it's not as if Carter disliked how he used to dress or anything or, like, disliked being very studious. So it got, like... It was a relief for him. It's like he was legitimately yeah. bullied into acting more like a typical teenager. Yeah. Which doesn't, like, oh, yeah, no. Sadie, so, this is the whole thing. Sadie 100% has had, like, instead of character growth, she's had character regression. She's just gotten worse as the series has gone on. I don't remember what she's like in The Serpent Shadow, but I have a feeling it's probably not any better. Yeah. I don't think it will <laughs> because it seems like they're going to have to resolve her love triangle. Whatever. Oh, God mess that is yeah. so she can only get worse <laughs> she can only get worse that's the only way yeah um i just yeah <laughs> um but i agree with you zero and Walt deserved more uh get rid of anubis i think this is it. remove all of the anubis cameos fucking useless there's no point in them he sucks as a character and as a person walt is the best character when he was 14 for sadie but also he deserves better than Sadie. Sadie is awful. <laughs> That's so true. He's so sweet. Uh, he is the best person, and she is shit. <laughs> like, he deserves so much better. I feel like Walt and Carter would make a lot more sense. 
oh my god, I've talked about this before. Yes, I completely agree. Right? Because I don't even think Zia and Carter really make sense. No. I think there's the concept of them makes sense. Because, like, Zia is also a very studious person. She's someone who believes in, like, right and wrong. Just like Carter does, you know, he bends it a little bit when he needs to. So I think the premise of it is there. But, yeah, him and Walt would definitely make more sense. They definitely yeah. bond a lot better. I just feel like I've never read Zia and Carter and seen chemistry. It's always like Carter is trying so hard <laughs> to make this work and Zia is like trying to not be cruel when explaining why it's a bad idea. And Carter's yeah. still like, she's not quite my girlfriend. I'm like, Carter, she has never chosen to speak to you once. Please stop, man. You're, you're embarrassing yourself at this point. Yeah. And he was like so... I don't know. I thought his obsession with her was a little strange in this book. And then the payoff of it being like, I don't remember you. That literally wasn't me. It was a clay figure. Um, And him still not letting it go. It's like, sir, it's yeah. not what you think it is. And I get that he's 14, so it kind of makes sense that he like thought that's what a relationship was. But at some point, when is he gonna let it go? And I know he's not. I know, you know, it's gonna get resolved with them actually ending up together. But it's gonna spill out of nowhere, I think, because Sia has not been affectionate towards him at all. Yeah, it was literally to the the last little bit before she cracked as a shabti in the first book. There was some like affection sort of there where they talk about going yeah. on a date to the mall. Um, yeah, I think they definitely. I honestly, I think they should have ended up with them as being more friends like i like the idea of the relationship because i also like that carter respects her boundaries because like even in this chapter like when she is having well no in the next chapter um which we'll go into next after this because this sort of lading into it um the fact that when she's going with amos and she basically says to carter like you know um i've got to deal with this uh, i'm really sorry that things aren't like working out um maybe when things have calmed down we can like reassess so i like how she's not like fully like shooting him down but also not giving him too much hope and even though he's like sad about it he still respects it like he's not pushing her he's not like all these sort of things which is so different for, like the first time it happened where she kind of shoots him down but doesn't um he has this whole thing of like he's understanding and he's like yeah no that's of course of course and in my head, when that scene was happening, I was like, oh, God, because I couldn't remember what happened. I thought he was going to, like, push back because, like, obviously that's the usual thing of, like, the girl's not sure and the guy keeps pushing to make right. her sure. But that doesn't happen at all. Like, he respects her decision. He respects her confusion. And though he's sad about it and just not the best at hiding his sadness, <laughs> he doesn't push her. Like, he's like, yeah, no go. It, it's all good. We'll reassess all these sort of things, basically. I just like that. I like that he doesn't push. But yes, I do think it does make sense. Though I guess technically they don't fully end up together at the end of the series either. They just, not to give, I know you haven't fully finished it, but I think all they do is they go out for a meal at a mall and that's it. So they're not mm -hmm. like in a relationship. There's just the possibility of something, which I like. There's no yeah. confirmation. There's just a possibility. That is an interesting way to end it. And I, I just, I see for them, like, mutual respect partnerships and, like, a close friendship. And I feel like that would be a cool dynamic for Rick to actually... And he does do it at Magnus. 
with Magnus and Samira. And I I guess it feels kind of like that to me, which, I mean, Mm -hmm. I will always say that Magnus is his best work, so that makes sense that he executed it there. Um, (laughs) One thing I really did not like about this chapter and did not like about this book is how they treated Jazz. She makes her return in the chapter, and it is so weird because the only thing we get about jazz being here is oh good jazz is out of a coma oh it was so silly i was ever jealous of her and walt like you cannot create a female character and then traumatize and injure her just for the payoff to be oh it's good emotional growth for walt and like it it confused and added conflict to Sadie and Walt's relationship. That's so stupid. I was so upset. I was so upset. I talked about this like the first time we were introduced to her and then she ended up in a coma. Shows the worst side of Sadie and again, she never gets better. But also I'm like, (laughs) you can tell that Rick has introduced a healer character just to put her out of commission to add stakes to the fact that they no longer have a healer so if they get injured they're screwed because literally not long after that's when (laughs) when carter gets bitten by that snake yeah although i wonder i don't think she would have been able to do it anyway as a healer because it was like really bad but like either way like it's meant like literally the only reason why she's in a coma is to add stakes to oh no we don't have a healer what do we do and also have Sadie have this moment of like oh my god I feel so bad that I'm angry that Walt cares that Jazz is in a fucking coma <laughs> oh my god who who would act like that no one would like Rick really thinks 13 year old girls are like that um do you know what fridging is in media uh, I do yeah, that, yeah. yeah. it's so it's close somewhat. to fridging except she doesn't actually die yeah yeah I just, mm, I, yeah, mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. not a fan. <laughs> I mean, they could somewhat so do it. Cool. Yeah, they somewhat do it to Zia as well, of like her yeah, disappearing. Yeah, oh, of course she does come back, but yeah, there is so close. Yeah, it does kind of feel like Zia's entire plot in book one is just to make her appealing to Carter, so that her disappearance in book two is devastating. Not because Zia is an important character in and of herself. Yeah. And, you know, we have male healers in Percy's books, and Will Solis never gets put out of commission to raise the stakes. Yeah. (sighs) (laughs) I just didn't lie. Yeah, no, I'm not a fan of it either. I wish she had more of a role. That's the whole thing. I was like, we could have had some great sidekicks in Walt and Jazz, but no like i'm still glad we get walt but like jazz would have been cool as well to bring on those trips like yeah she would have been and i don't like love triangles at all i don't feel like it's ever a good idea but if if rick insisted on doing one he could have done sadie jazz and walt and just left anubis out of it yeah and then it wouldn't at least be creepy yeah in general Uh, i just want more time at the brooklyn house with the initiates Mm. you know cleo's so interesting felix is adorable i love bast i wish she was in every scene she's my favorite (laughs) and like i don't know i think more of the 
them teaching lessons, going on, like, smaller quests with different character combinations to, like, actually see that they all care for each other and are learning would have been more interesting than just, like, this is what Sadie and Carter do normally, but here, you know, 90% of the book is going to be just them doing their own thing away from everyone else. Yeah. No, I, I would have loved more Brooklyn, Brooklyn House. I can't remember if we do get... I think we get a bit more of them in book three, but we should have had more That's of them exciting. this time around. But yeah. They're just... They're interesting people. Um, <laughs> but let's move on now to the next chapter, which is chapter 24, I Make an Impossible Promise. Um, and this is the overview for chapter 24. With the house returned to how it was before the battle, Zia and Amos take their leave back to the first gnome to stake his claim. It's an awkward affair, but it may be their chance to return things to a sense of balance. Bass returns from taking Ra to the realm of the gods and takes the canes back with her. It is time to meet with the gods themselves and hear their pledge of service to the king. Of course, both Horus and Isis leave the canes with some healthy threats, and Anubis continues the stupid, bad, sad boy aesthetic for Sadie. After this, they return to Sunny Acres to find Bess. And from some misogynistic blaming, the siblings see Bess and promise to return his rent to him. Coming home, Sadie is in her fields before Walt arrives to give her some words of encouragement. It is time for her and Carter to record their story once more to warn everyone of what is to come. Woo! I love the recording stuff. I think that's one of the favorite, like my favorite concepts of the stuff that they've done for this series. Of everything is a recording. Yeah, amazing. I think it's really cute, and I like their little interruptions. Yeah, of each other. I do like their sibling dynamic. I like that Rick at some point decided to show siblings because it's not really common in his books. Um, yeah, and I think it's. It's done well in the first book, especially with, um, like, Carter being book smart and Sadie being street smart and that dynamic. It can be really cute in certain moments. Yeah. Um, and I think this ending part of, like, when, oh, my God, when Carter came in with the birthday present, which was their mum's old, like, book, and for them to read it together, oh, my God, that was so beautiful. That was actually so sweet. Like, that was the, that was the best moment of the book. <laughs> It was. Carter's a really good big brother, actually. Like, a really really good big brother. Um, And he was like, I know it's not a gold necklace and stuff. And, and like, it was so sweet and thoughtful. Um, And he knows that he remembers their mom more. So he wants to pass that on as much as he can, which is a lot for him to take on. Um, And I think, like, Sadie's a shitty little sis. Wait, are we allowed to curse? Or should I? Yes, yes. Okay. Sadie's an awful little sister, and Carter's an amazing big brother, and it makes it sad because I don't feel like she got him anything for his birthday. Yeah. Um, And she's just so mean to him all the time. And then Carter takes, like, really good care of her, and even, like, I think it's nice when he kind of is freaked out about certain things with her, like with Anubis or whatever, but he's trying not to be overbearing and is like a pretty respectful person. That's nice too. Mm. Yeah. He has so many good moments. Uh, to say is both Walt and Carter deserve better than Sadie. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they really do. I don't get how Zia likes this version of Sadie. 
That was the thing that threw me the most. I was like, but why? She sucks. I know. It's like way worse than originally. I don't understand that either. Yeah, the logic there just just makes no sense. Sadie's writing just makes absolutely no sense. Like, she could be cool. She really could be. And she just is written as being mean and and obsessed with these two boys. And that is the end of her character development. Like, I couldn't tell you another trait. Yeah, and that's... Going into this uh, final chapter. um, How in the fuck (laughs) is the finale of this chapter, other than this really sweet moment with the siblings predominantly about her having a crush on Walt and Anubis. That is the finale we have basically received here, which is blurting awkwardness with Walt, seeing a poster of Anubis whilst Walt is in the room with her and feeling awkward about it. That's how we've ended it. What? Yeah. And the world is still in turmoil. So it's not even like a, this is what I'm thinking about after all the important things are handled. She literally puts it on par with Apophis rising and with trying to get Ra back to himself. I could understand Sadie seeing Walt's health as equally important to those things. But that's not what she sees as equally important to those things. She sees picking between them because she feels like that's the place that she's in. Like she gets her choice of either Walt or Anubis. And both are complicated in their own ways. And complicated in their own ways means one is dying and one's a god. And that's what she cares about. Not actually that Walt is dying. Yeah, it just... I think the worst part about it is, well, like, adding on to that, like, obviously they have the discussion about, like, his mortality, but all of this, like, (laughs) all of this focusing on boys has come not long after seeing Bess catatonic. Like, it's the next scene after seeing Bess in Sunny Acres is her mooning over a pair of boys. That would have been a perfect moment for her to actually be in her grief in some way. Because she was the one who bonded with Bess more in some way. Like, she may not have had, like, a singular journey with him like Carter did when they were going to get Zia. But there was a bond there that they had. Like, she was the one, like, she gave him the kiss, she hugged him, she begged him not to make this choice. Have her be in her feelings about that. So when yeah. Carter, like, even, maybe even have Walter still come in. I say, I just called him Walter. <laughs> <laughs> May have Walt have Walt come in and still not instead even from a flirty position, but come in to see if she's okay. Actually, no, t- I take it back. I don't want Walt there. I like Walt, but I don't. I want Carter to be the one to come in and comfort her about the best yeah. situation and offer her this gift of their mother. I would have also liked to see Bast come in and comfort her about the Walt situation. <laughs> Not the Walt situation. I don't want anyone talking about the Walt situation. Unless it's how this boy is going to get better. Um, I want Bass to come in and talk about the best situation. Because I think Sadie and Bast... And Bast is a better done version of their personality. Because they are somewhat similar. Of being like a little bit jaded. Putting on airs. Being protective of themselves. Which is something that some women do as a strategy to protect themselves it's very valid Sadie just has it done very poorly um 
And it would be interesting for them to bond over what just happened to Bast, how she was blamed for something that is not in any way her fault and torn apart. And Sadie and her talking about how, like, that happens to women, how they both miss Bast so much. Like, they already have a close mentor relationship. I think Bast sees Sadie as, like, a little kitten, you know? And it would have been a really good example of female mentorship and also we could have addressed the shit show that was how bass was treated in the scene before and then of course carter come in because it's very sweet that they debrief every night that's adorable but yes no i completely agree that whole bass situation i what was the words that i put in here uh oh actually no i didn't put i didn't put it as <laughs> as diff- as hatred into the comments but i just but i just hate that bass is being blamed this is nothing she's being blamed for not reciprocating bess's feelings that is the exact reason she's being blamed and then being set, told you are leading him on and like bess literally said that they would just bump into each other at like events because they were you know one of the two of the most popular gods and it's like how is that her fault like yes she maybe she called on him a few more times but he went that doesn't necessarily mean that she knew he liked her because he does like it does it and this is such a common trope in media and it has real world implications so this like really reminds me of the concept of the friend zone which is just men thinking that being nice to women gets them access to sex and are then mad at women and they quote-unquote led them on because they were kind to them, which, of course, men cannot do without expecting something in return. Um, and it's insane. It's absolutely insane. I remember being in high school and a boy liked me. And when I said no, and then three months later, he asked again, and I got mean about it because I was enforcing a boundary. I was like, I was gotten so much trouble for treating another student like that and things like that. And he got no trouble for like not respecting a boundary and not being okay with just being friends and it it just reminds me of that and it's super common in media also to set up the dynamic of like oh the hot girl doesn't want the nerdy guy because she doesn't realize he's actually better than the jock and she's so superficial when nerdy guys are also awful to women you know like they're the ones sending the dm rape and death threats so i don't know why they get a free pass and why it's on the women because they're not interested in them. Yes. How many also add in the fact that that's exactly what Bess does to Tawat? Like, he treats her terribly because he thinks he's entitled to Bast, really. Like, he has no interest in her. He now feels bad about it because he's basically been guaranteed he'll never get with Bast. And now he feels bad that the one person who was actually interested in him, he hurt their feelings. And, like, he, oh, it's yeah. just the whole thing is so messy and so, so fucked up on so many levels now. I'm just reading it. I have to kind of skim read it a little bit because it just makes my blood boil. It's really upsetting. Like, he's somehow the victim still, even though, yeah, you're right, he did the exact, he did the exact thing he's claiming Bass did. Yeah. It's just, it's not on. And I'm just really mad that Tawat is taking it out on her and i know it'll be that thing of like well she can't take it out on him because she cares about him and like but that's still be like letting your internalized misogyny take over 
Like, yeah. There's, just, there's a lot of internalized misogyny in quite a few of these female characters. Like, Sadie has it, Tawak clearly has it, and, oh, God, it's just... There is, yeah. and there's a lot of pitting women against each other, and I think that's going to happen whenever men write women because they don't understand solidarity. And I'll say white men specifically because men of color definitely understand solidarity. Um, like, when you're in a marginalized group, you protect one another, and you take each other's side while collecting more information, and, like, you err on the side of believing them most of the time. And internalized misogyny can definitely affect that. And also, like, if you choose to tokenize yourself, that can definitely affect that. But women are not all walking around jealous of one another. That's not happening. They're not Mm. doing what is written in these books. And so it's frustrating because we don't get any healthy female mentorship or healthy female friendships. We only get this fighting. Like, even Zia and Sadie are friends now, but they spent the whole first book fighting. And, like, why would that be? Yeah. Girls don't act like that. Zia wasn't being, like, Zia was being rude, in a sense, to everyone. I put in quotes, rude. She was just direct because she didn't trust them. Sadie was the one who was consistently being rude towards Zia. Like, Zia was not returning fire. It was always Sadie sending the first shot and Zia either returning it or just kind of just letting it pass. Like, there was never, it was never that back and forth. It was always Sadie who was doing it. And it's just like, it's basically like her character, like kind of going into like the specific um, notes for the character section. Sadie is the main one I wanted to talk about because like I was saying earlier, she never gets better as a character. She fully regresses and regresses with each, like with each interaction I get with her in her chapters. I'm like, you're, you're getting worse somehow. Like Rick has written her as such a one dimensional character who's boy crazy, is cruel, and she just doesn't understand how, seemingly doesn't understand how to build genuine relationships with others unless she's bringing them down or bad-mouthing someone else to form that group. Like even with her friends, Emma and Liz, the way they become friends is she's basically saying they're different to the other girls because they're not as stupid as the others, basically. Like, that was like a <laughs> full thing said. Just, yeah. I hate it so much. Oh, God. It was awful. I read that and I was like, what the fuck? Really? <laughs> Uh, it's like the opposite of piper where piper starts out with like a ton of internalized misogyny and it's like weird and she's not like other girls and then she grows and does a complete 180 you know throughout rick's character arc of her and then sadie starts out like okay i don't love her but i could see this going okay and her being like funny and then just steep decline yeah huge decline i just yeah it's it's really disappointing because like she had so much potential to be a character because like they like both her and carter should have influenced each other in some way like carter becoming more relaxed in some way and i don't know just like sadie learning to be someone who can open up a bit more because she's not really the sort of person who opens up like I'm remembering just now that she had an entire conversation with Iskandar in the first book when he was in his bar form after he died. And she still has not told Carter about that. He has no idea that happened. Yeah. It's weird. And they, I feel like in the first book, Rick was setting up Sadie with, with her having her own kind of relationship with Iskandar. And her, I don't, it seemed like she more easily connected to the gods than he did. And it seemed like she was maybe going to have 
the propensity for magic and he was going to have the knowledge and they were going to work together um and like build their sibling relationship and stuff and that's kind of what's happening throughout the first book except that she's really mean which felt random um and then it dropped off at some point and it just I feel like her character lost direction completely and now it's just about this love triangle yeah and it's a real problem I'm just, and it's it's definitely something that I can tell suffered from the fact that Rick is writing multiple books for two different series at once. Yeah, like mm, it's not it's not going to help. Um, and like the only other thing that I had for her character is just like why why is this ending to do with a crush? I hate this so much. Which is basically yeah. the only thing. I just I don't get it. Give them time to grieve best and have a moment as siblings, and then record. Yeah, or, like, plan how they're going to save the world because, like, they don't even really address the fact that Raw coming back is not what they thought would happen. And, like, they clearly didn't do it completely right. They're missing a step. Yeah. And the Apophis is risen. (laughs) Yeah, Apophis is alive. He's out. There's so many important things going on. So many important things going on. And we tackle absolutely none of them. Instead, she's like, upset that Walt might notice that Anu- she has a poster of Anubis in her closet which I hate that does so Walt does Walt know that she has this weird thing with Anubis how would he know she would have had to tell him I think she makes a point of it at some point in this book oh you're right which is another weird. mean thing to do he's dying Sadie yeah although mainly at that point she doesn't know that he's dying but she's doing it because of his like because oh. she caught him and jazz having a conversation that's literally having the whole a reason. conversation my yeah. girl is so crazy she is she's insane <laughs> she <laughs> is and i don't understand what rick thought he was doing because he's he's not bad at writing like slightly unhinged women he does an excellent job writing alex yes yes and he missed the mark so bad here. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Alex is um, what Sadie character... What Actually, you know what? Sadie was the first try of what Alex turned out to be. Because Alex mm-hmm. is the perfect version of what I feel Sadie was trying to seemingly be. But Rick did it better with Alex. Yeah. Have you... That's- shared your feelings on the fact that Sadie is not only white passing but like basically has only phenotypes of being white I have talked about it in like throughout yeah just the the, the issues that I kind of have with it of like the lack of addressing of her own situation of her privilege and all these sort of things uh, the fact that she like she hasn't really called her grandparents out for being racist towards her brother and her dad yeah. Stuff like that. Like, yeah, various different things throughout. So, yeah, I've discussed it a few times. Because um, I think it's just really disappointing. Like, there's no real note of it. Like, I think she notes in the first book, like, she's had comments made about her appearance. And, like, so she's very clearly someone who it doesn't appear fully white, but can pass in general. But has enough characteristics that if people are around her enough, they'll know. Mm-hmm. but that still doesn't seem to like really address anything with her like she doesn't 
really kind of focus on it. She's very much this. I think it's possibly due to the fact that she's also growing up in a very white household with her grandparents as well. And from what I know of the area of London she's in, a very white affluent area of London mm. as well. Um, I'm always surprised though, because one of her best friends, I think it was, it was either, I think it was Emma, um, is um, like South Asian. Right. And yet, like racist like that's would still be something that like if one of her friends is also a person of color you'd think there'd be some more addressing of her side but no yeah that felt like a really big miss for me and you can see the way it affects the fandom because i see so much art where they're drawing sadie as a white girl yeah when she's not like she has firstly she doesn't have blonde hair which is something that rick messes up later she has caramel colored hair She's got pale skin, but she's got very clearly black features as well, right. which is why she's picked on with racial microaggressions at school. Yeah. And the fandom just, I think because Rick doesn't address her blackness or the fact that she's like had to kind of make a choice of whether to pass or not, or the fact that she clearly like has BIPOC friends because of solidarity, it, it really gave such an easy out to just think that she looks like Annabeth and she does not look like Annabeth Uh, book Annabeth of course TV show Annabeth Annabeth. has been cast and she is wonderfully a black girl which is amazing Um, yes but it just makes me sad because there's not that much representation Rick certainly gets better about it but then Mm. he slips up so much here and I, I just think it's weird in general if you have two siblings like that the the girl is gonna be the one who's um has a closer proximity to whiteness because we know that the Mm. beauty standards are always put on women more so than men Mm. and the beauty standard is unfortunately whiteness so i just feel like it's a weird dynamic that he created i just it was before his sensitivity reader time yes and it's very much it's very obvious in that case um yeah um, and also the fact that also the two boys she's choosing between is a black boy and a white boy. Yeah. And she is taking the black boy for granted, even though he's a much more valid option. Yes. There's just a lot of race dynamics in here that Rick doesn't seem to address or acknowledge and maybe doesn't even know. Um mm. But you yeah. can't just make your characters black. If your characters are black, it informs the way that you write because race dynamics exist and it mm. feels to me that this is which do you know what year this came out uh this was 2011 this one um i had okay. this whole thing because there was actually um riots in london due to a black man being killed in london oh, really? by police but when this published that hadn't happened yet but in my head i'm like 2000 the next book is in 2012 so it definitely has happened by that point so in my head i'm like i wish there was some addressing of this because sadie would definitely be more aware because it happened in london where she lives and you would think that would really make her consider her identity um Mm. a lot at that point and like her own privilege of passing and things like that um Mm. i mean i would think 2011 would still be in the era of media trying to just be colorblind media created by white people and so i feel like that's what rick did he was like look at these characters who are characters of color and in the first few chapters carter addresses it 
um, mm. a few times. Which is good that, I mean, I'm sure that that was good for white kids who were reading these books to think about, for sure. Mm. But yeah. he just sets himself up to need to address a lot more things and bring on sensitivity readers and or a co-writer, some something, some semblance of bringing black voices into the story. And I think yeah. Sadie's character honestly suffers a lot because he doesn't. Yeah. And this is the thing that I noticed. So Red Pyramid actually addresses a lot from Carter's side, like the racism that he experiences and the microaggressions. We've not had any of this in this book. There's been yeah, no that fell off of completely. It. Yeah. Which considering so much that is happening, like him like there's I think there's one note of it of um like Sadie appearing whiter in comparison to Carter and the two of them being in Egypt and that being somewhat suspicious looking is addressed, mm-hmm. but it's just like a throwaway line that just, just kind of like has no real significance. And yeah, it just, mm, it was, it's just odd. Like there was quite a lot of significance of it in the first book of like Carter being harassed by airport police and all these sort of things because he was a black boy in an airport. Yeah. I just, yeah. And if you're, if you're going to have Carter talk about how his clothes are partially because he is a black boy and he needed to dress professionally and he could be putting himself in danger by dressing like a typical boy his age, a white boy his age, then you need to reevaluate that when Carter starts mm-hmm. wearing hoodies. Like, you set up a plot line that you didn't finish. And the same with the siblings. He makes a point of how... Sadie is much closer in proximity to whiteness and then never brings it up again. Like, it seemed like he intended to address it and then it fell off. I, and maybe yeah. because this book was rushed, so he didn't do the things he set up in the Red Pyramid. Like, he literally only followed the plot line, like the overarching, arching big arching. villain. Yeah. Um, and and then added in the stupid love triangle. And that's it. That's all he did with this book. Yeah. Um, Mike is kind of going from that into sort of the finale aspect, because obviously these are the last two chapters of this book. Um, It doesn't feel like a finale. I think that's where I'm at. <laughs> Everything that's happened here feels nothing like a finale. Yeah. I think it doesn't feel like a finale because this book doesn't have its own plot. It's just tying up a few loose strings from the first book and setting up a few things for the third. It's not... I really think that Rick does best when the books are semi-self-contained. You know, like, there can be an overarching... I did it again. There can be an overarching villain, you know. Like, this would be keeping the balance between chaos and order but there there needs to be a villain that is more tangible and that gets progressively harder in a self-contained so that you can have resolution you can build different relationships you can have time for subplots everybody can sort of attach themselves to the larger story by you know like these characters are affected by this villain and then in the next book these characters are affected by this villain so that by the time you get there there's payoff for everyone um and i that requires a lot of plotting out you can't just start a series and see where it goes it won't work that way and i think because this series is rushed it didn't happen it just sort of he went along as he went along and this is it got a little messy yeah i think that's kind of the best way to describe it like it just got a little bit messy like 
I feel really bad saying it, but this ending is really boring as well. Like we've just we've not really we've not really wrapped anything up. Like Apophis is out there. No addressing of the fact that Apophis is out there. I literally that's not been addressed at all, except for <laughs> that little bit in the throne room with like Horus and that basically being like, We're gonna pledge to Ra because he's gonna need our help. I don't even think that do, do they mention Apophis in that section? I don't actually remember. I don't think so. It was just about it was like maybe you made a mistake, Carter, but it wasn't really because Apophis is gonna defeat Ra. It was just vague and it definitely seemed like Horus was just more upset that he was dethroned yeah and like yeah so it's just the whole thing so the no mentioning of Apophis we just get a brief mention of like yeah we're gonna help save Bess and I'm like but how um (laughs) and there's like brief mention of the fact that they're gonna take Ra on his cycle again and hopefully that'll help but there's been no addressing of the fact that the weasel and zebra thing that Ra was talking about is Walter and Zia. Like, Sadie mentions it in the previous chapter, being like, oh, that's what it means. And then it's never brought up again in this book. Like, you have this realisation, and then nothing comes from it. Like, what? It's so much more interesting than everything that they did follow up on. Yeah. It's just like, oh my god, it just mildly just like gave, I was like there's so many unaddressed things here and there are so many things we've seemingly forgotten about. (laughs) Why is no one questioning that Menshikov died so quickly and easily? Like, how did he die? Like, I'm assuming he was burnt up because he was hosting Apophis and then Apophis was suddenly like yanked out of him, but It was very strange. And it's sad because I really enjoyed this book. I just feel like the finale, I feel like I thought we were three quarters of the way through the book and we were actually pretty much done with the book. And then the finale felt very flat. And it wasn't this triumphant return to Brooklyn House. That happens off the page. Them reconnecting, them cleaning the house, them putting their lives back together, formulating plans. That all happens off the page and instead we get Sadie in her bedroom being sad. Yeah, and we don't even get like a proper formulating of plans, like other than mm-hmm. Am- Amos and Zia heading to the first gnome to try and like, you know, get people together and organize for what's going to happen. There is no actual plan of like, okay, what are we going to do about Apophis? Like, if this chapter, like, if this book had ended with them discussing how to f- defeat Apophis and then saying oh we should record this so we can get our side of the story out and let people know that we need help to figure out how to defeat Apophis like end in relation to Apophis of some way yeah. to like carry it on because like how this book ends doesn't f- like it's not that it's open ended it's just that I'm at this point where I'm like I know we're going to have to be defeating Apophis and returning Bess's Wren but I don't know like how why when where like i know nothing <laughs> yeah and at least with the end of the previous book we had an idea of what the like the final threads for what we're going to be going into the next book were going to be i agree i would have loved to see a little round table moment of like carter sadie walt jazz zia maybe cleo just because i like her and bass <laughs> and amos talking about what happened? What do we do now? And like, in deciding together, like, okay, 
this is a big sacrifice. The Z and Amos need to go to the first gnome. So we'll say goodbye to them. Bast is going to be here. Bast has this vague idea of how to maybe help Bess. And because they're friends, like she's very invested in that. Maybe her and Cleo are going to go research and figure out how to do that. And then Carter and Sadie, like, it's a lot for them. And they've been saving the world for a long time. And they're very tired. And they're children. But, like, we need to do this one last thing. Like, we are clearly missing something with Raw. And we know Walt's connected. So, like, us three, let's go, like, research and find out how to get Raw the rest of the way ready. Because a battle's coming in X amount of time. Like, Rick Riordan loves a timeline. I don't know why he didn't put one in here. Yeah. Yeah. That's also an additional thing of like if we'd had a timeline as well, like that would at least be something. <laughs> yeah. We know when it's, when it's I coming. that would have been enough to give stakes and to make you anxious about the next book coming out, I think. Yeah. Oh my god. There was just there was a lot of possibility and it's just this finale is just rushed. It's a little bit disappointing. Because the whole the book started off really strong and it just slowly kind of declined, I feel. Yeah, I I agree. I actually really, it was the opposite of the first book for me where I felt like the beginning of the first book was very slow. Mm. But once it kicked up, it was so good and I loved it and the ending was fantastic. And then I was so excited for this book, but then the finale wasn't there for me. Yeah, which is sad because this this whole thing, the series had so much potential if it had been given the attention it deserved. I agree. It's very cool. I and I I like a lot of the characters as well, even more mm. than just the premise. I'm excited for the Netflix adaptation because Rick's involved and like maybe he'll clean it up a little bit. Mm. I mean, he definitely will have to redistribute plot a little bit because the first book is so much longer than the second and third books. And the first movie can't just be what double the length of the other movies. Um mm. So, I don't know. I'm kind of excited to see him get to reevaluate and take another try, take another round of this. Yeah. Yeah, especially like what you were saying there cuz I think the first book is like 20 chapters longer than the rest. <laughs> or something it's like so that. long. It's so weirdly long and then the rest of them like Serpent Shadow is the shortest one cuz it's only 22 chapters and that already made me nervous. I was like how is the finale shorter? <laughs> like than I know. Yeah. Yeah. Bimini, then and also Blood of Olympus is very short as well. <laughs> he was tired. <laughs> he was very tired. <laughs> Which I get. So yeah. where did Magnus Chase come out timeline wise? Um as in, in the written timeline or was it or as in when was it published? When was it published? Um, I think it was 2015. Hold on. So, so you'll cut. When will you cover Magnus Chase? Oh, not for a while. So I think. Okay, so it is much later. Oh yeah, so 2015. Right, was because that one. Heroes of Olympus sets up Magnus Chase and Trials of Apollo. Of course, yeah. right. And then I mean, Trials sets of up. Apollo... They say one thing. Yeah, <laughs> but then um, Trials of Apollo and Magnus Chase kind of are running along the same line like they're both happening at the same time timeline wise so what cut so it goes all of the heroes of olympus books then serpent's shadow and then you've got the demigods and magicians short stories um and then then the sword of summer is first and then the hidden oracle 
and then you've got some of like the small like short story things and then it goes to basically all of the trials of apollo ones being first and like uh there's one so there's this one that's complicated part of the timeline which is the dark prophecy and the burning maze are seemingly happening around the same time as the hammer of thor <laughs> like the hammer of yeah. thor is taking over a long period of time so both trials of apollo books are happening at the same time as the hammer of thor <laughs> <laughs> so you've got some decisions to make uh, yeah it's very complicated <laughs> um interesting uh, yeah um and then i think it's there's a gap so the tyrant's tomb um there isn't a uh, Magnus Chase book happening at the same time as that so then the Ship of the Dead and the Tower of Nero are the ones happening at the same time I was just curious because it seems like this is the series that didn't get as much attention and so I, mm. I was just curious when the that one came out because I feel like it did get a lot of attention despite not being part of his like core Greek series yeah I think that one got more attention because there was nothing else, like Magnus Chase, I mean, there was nothing else from Rick being published that year. Like, 2015 was, like, it was just Magnus Chase that had come out this that year. Yeah. Um, although he did then go on to do this thing of, like, publishing Trials of Apollo and Magnus Chase around the same time as well. Like, the first two Trials of Apollo books are in the same years as the last two of Magnus Chase. But they did neither of them seem to suffer. So I'm very no. Yeah. It's interesting. Um When did Blood of Olympus publish? Now that you've got me wondering, I'm just like, okay, how did Okay, so yeah, so he hadn't so he must have been working on things for a while. So Blood was Blood of Olympus published in twenty fourteen. And so the next series, there was nothing else until Magnus Chase. And Magnus Chase basically had its own like time to like gain attention because there was nothing else being published and i guess also it was kind of connected because obviously chase like people are like oh, chase like annabeth. yeah and also annabeth is also in the first book as well so i think that also kind of added to it whereas the king chronicles is completely separate like it's not connected to anything else except for itself um which sadly is the reason why i think it probably got left behind a little bit alongside being published yeah. at the same time as heroes of olympus um because there's nothing to do with Percy in it. And I was like, Percy isn't everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I still think this series is really good. But I not only did it not gain attention, but it also it shouldn't have been written at the same time as Heroes of Olympus. Like, not remotely. It should have been... It, Heroes of Olympus either should have been published first and then Kane Chronicles afterwards. Or... King Chronicles first and then Heroes of Olympus. Like, give people yeah. a bit of a break that, like, from a Percy overload. Like, do something new and then go back to it. In this, these series feels more middle grade than young adult to me. Um, and it's it fits more with Percy Jackson and the Olympians. You've got the fun chapter titles. You've got the more simple point of view the smaller core group you've got more of the camp vibe with the brooklyn house so i think if it probably should have come first and then let heroes of olympus come after and then mm. i i mean i would imagine that a lot of kids kind of read heroes of olympus a little bit on the young side because yeah. the jump from middle grade to young adult is big and so rick could have given kids time to grow up a little bit and have the Kane chronicles and then have 
their YA Percy series when everybody's a little bit older. I feel like that could have worked well. Yeah, definitely. I think it would have also given him time to actually plan it out because both the yeah. King Chronicles and Heroes of Olympus could have needed so much better planning. <laughs> like, <'cause laughs> what, what, what is happening with half of this series? Yeah, I think it was probably a little overwhelming and maybe he felt like he needed to capitalize on his success. And so he was like, I need to push out a middle grade and a YA series right now. And then I think once he saw that he had some staying power and he wasn't going anywhere, he maybe was able to take his time more with Madness and Trials. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But yeah, that's just how that's just how it be. But um, that if is. you want more planned out like series and books, um, be sure to read mine and Megan's work when they come out. <laughs> yeah, we I do so much detail. planning. We promise. <laughs> I will never forget a character's age and then change it three chapters later. That's my guarantee <laughs> yeah. to you. <laughs> In my case, with my series, I don't have to worry about age because the main character does not even know how old she is in the first book. Oh, that's an excellent idea. <laughs> age is nothing to wolves, so she has no fucking clue. Um, and I love that because it saves me a lot of time. <laughs> Very true. It is tricky to keep track of. It is. I don't like it. <laughs> um, but on that note, um, we'll be finishing this up here. So for everyone who is listening, be sure to uh, tune in for the question of the episode on the social media, which is, what did you think of the finale of The Throne of Fire? Be sure to comment your thoughts on the post that will be going up on all the socials. Um, and Megan, seriously, thank you so much for coming on to talk all about the finale of Throne of Fire. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it was so fun. Thank you for having me. No worries. Um, tell everyone who's listening again where they can find you and all that good stuff. Sure. So you can listen to the Monstrous Woman podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, where we talk about female representation in media. If you love Fran's podcast, then you can listen to her two episodes. Um, one of them is about her book, which is fun. And then uh, we're on social media on Instagram at the Monstrous Woman Pod. And then I have my Instagram about what I'm reading and also what I'm writing, which is Megan Peterson Writes. All right, awesome. And as always, all of that will be in the episode show notes down below. As always, thank you all for joining us for the finale of The Throne of Fire. Be sure to join me next Wednesday as we continue our own verse journey with Heroes of Olympus, Son of Neptune. <laughs> Bye, everyone. To plug where you can find our podcast, we're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audio Boom, Stitcher, and basically where we listen to your podcasts. In the meantime, between episodes, you can find the Best Damn Camp on various social media at Best Damn Camp Pod on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to email me with your thoughts on the episode, you can email the Best Damn Camp at hotmail.com, or if you want to support the podcast, you can head over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash a healthy dose of Fran, which is linked in the episode show notes for things like early access to episodes and other exclusive perks. Want more Royal Universe content? Check me out on YouTube at a healthy dose of Fran. And if you want to support my writing career, drop me a follow at a dose of Fran on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Again, thank you all for tuning in. As always, I've been Fran, your very own hunter, and I'll see you, shall I speak to you all next time. Bye.